0: To sing praises to our King, it can resolve a lot of problems. That's one of the reasons why Paul says, "Rejoice in everything." And again, I say, "Rejoice," but it's not easy. If it were easy, we'd be doing it all the time. If it were easy, we wouldn't even. Oh, I have this hymnal. If it were easy, we wouldn't even need to be assembled. We wouldn't need each other. We wouldn't have any problems. We wouldn't have anything to learn. Sometimes as we go through life, we get bent out of shape. I know most of you probably don't, but I do. I get bent out of shape. And I'm not talking about physically with an ailment or an injury. I'm talking about emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Bent out of shape. Now, if you can imagine that, you ever been to a restaurant went to use a fork that the tines had all been jacked up? It doesn't really work. Neither does our life. Neither do our hearts. Neither is our joy when we are bent out of shape. And beloved, we could get into the weeds of, of depravity and all the philosophy therein and the theological inferences and all that kind of stuff, and we can talk about all sorts of things about what it means to be sinners, but we know ultimately that we are sinners And that the only hope that we have is the mercy, kindness, love, grace of God for us as people. And not only is it the empowerment of our salvation, the power of God unto life, but it is our joy. God and His power, He is our joy. The good report is our joy. And some of us, we labor. We labor in everything. We work hard in everything. And we think that in order to succeed in spiritual matters, we must do what we do in earthly matters. We must work hard. But beloved, working hard in spiritual matters will get us nowhere. Resting in the finished, hard, difficult, impossible task of Jesus Christ is where our hope is going to be found. So we do. We get bent out of shape. And what does it look like for us? We worry. We wish things could be different. We want what we don't have, different outcomes. But sometimes for me, I feel like, you know, I wish somebody would come along and take control of the situation. Have you ever thought that? I wish something would be done. See, we we speak into the ether. We ambiguously have this idea which is the answer to all the problems, but yet there is no answer. It's just this ambiguous, ethereal hope magic wish somebody needs to do something about this well who? and then we can blame somebody for things and we don't ever want to blame ourselves and then we can blame ourselves but sometimes we just really wish somebody would take control of these circumstances and these issues and these people you know have you ever seen that new phrase I stay inside because it's too peopley out there I can, I can relate to that you know, I unwind and recharge by being alone. I don't recharge en masse. I don't do it. I don't recharge with noise and interaction and stimulus. I recharge with just silence. My brother called me one day last week and I happened to answer the phone, it was about 9 o'clock in the morning, I was sitting at my desk, and I hadn't said a word to anybody all day, and I must have sounded like a radio bra. He says, man, is that a new phone? That sounds great. You sound awesome. Is that a microphone you've got attached? To I'm like, no, I'm just talking. I haven't said anything, so I've had that, you know, that early resonance, where you sound really full. Those are unwinding, recharging times for me when I haven't had to say anything, because I spend my entire life talking. I love not to talk. But sometimes I want people to take control. I want things to be solved. I want the answer to be done. I want somebody to take the lead and do the right thing and fix the problems. And ironically, sometimes I think it's me, right? And sometimes I think it's you. And sometimes you think it's you. And sometimes you think it's me or anybody else in the world. And beloved, we're all wrong. We're all wrong. James, in his letter, says we shouldn't boast about what we're going to do today, tomorrow, next week. We should never say, you know what? Me and my buddy are going to be partners. We're going to go down here and start a business. We're going to do this. We should say, if the Lord wills, we shall go do this and this and this. Because guess what? All of our striving, all of our hard work, all of our expertise, all of our power, all of our strength, all of our determination, none of it was going to affect anything in regards of outcomes, solutions, problem-solving. Progress, prosperity, except that which God has ordained. That which God permits. That is why Solomon in his writing that we know as Ecclesiastes talks about and opines and really whines a little bit about how prosperous the wicked seem to be. For it is the Lord's purpose to do what he does and what would seem like a blessing, which is actually a curse, to store up wrath against them. But for us, beloved, sometimes the blessing of failure, sometimes the blessing of pain, sometimes the blessing and the blessed gift of suffering and relationship destruction and, the, and death and health problems are actually bringing us to a place of ultimate joy so that we aren't longing for the things that God has not given us, but we rejoice in the very thing that He has given us, and that is Himself. He is our joy. He is doing all things according to the counsel of His own will for our good and for the sake of His name. Scripture reveals the glory of God in Jesus Christ and in all things we are to walk by faith in Christ. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Yes, we're in Timothy. Yes, we're talking about peace. Okay? Scripture reveals that we are to walk by faith in Jesus in all things, knowing that even in our minds, if our minds rather, and if our hands and our hearts are chained or broken or bent out of shape, we are free and we are holy and we are fully set apart and perfect before our Father because Christ has done that work. Now, why do I make such an obvious statement? Because that is one of the purposes of preaching, is that we are reminded of the glory of Christ in redemption. We are reminded of all of the things he has done and accomplished for us. We are reminded that in the midst of our desire to make things better and to work things out for our good, we sometimes forget that he alone is the one working all things out for our good. Or as Romans 8, 28, toward the end, is that just a cliché? What's a grand expression of a closing argument moving into some practical instructions about God's sovereignty? Because we get into Romans 9, for those of us that know the letter, we know what Romans 9 opens with. Basically, is God saying, I do what I want with what I want, with whom I want, when I want, how I want, period. What is the word for that? The word for that is sovereignty. The word for that is sovereignty. And then after Paul teaches sovereignty in Romans 9 and 10, he begins to segue into some practical theology and understanding. Now, because God is all this, and because God has done all this, and because we all are His, therefore the Bible then is clear on how we're supposed to approach life. In what way? Every way. Every way that we could consider existence on this rock called earth We are to look at scripture and the gospel as a centerpiece out from which everything that we are to be doing flows. And even if the Bible doesn't teach us, of course it doesn't teach us, you know, calculations or budgeting. It teaches the centerpiece of these things. What is the centerpiece of budgeting? Christ. The gospel. Who is Jesus? He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the holy one set apart, sent from God. That's what Christ means, Messiah, by the way. He is the one who owns all things. So all wealth is due him. All things are created. He created the very thing that we consider wealth, that he's going to destroy at the end of all things because the only thing with all value is he, him, alone. He is the one with all value. So these things are just shadows. So when we're talking about budgeting, then we think, okay, for the sake of Christ, I am a steward of that which God has made. What am I doing with it? The Bible's clear. In every area of existence on this planet, we are to look at the scripture. As it reveals what? As it reveals ultimately and to the center of all its revelation, the glory of God in Christ. That he is in all things, above all things, beyond all things, preeminent of all things. He created all things. You know, all these words and phrases that Paul and Peter and others like to use in their writing. And we are to walk then by faith in Jesus Christ and we are not to ignore it. At the core of biblical teaching to the church is Jesus himself and really there's nothing more. Because there's nothing more, the instructions are not burdensome as John would say, remember? Because of Christ and we being found in him, these commandments are not burdensome. Now I'm just going to go ahead and say there are some people who have not been taught of God who don't think they have to listen to the instructions of the apostles in practical matters. That's nonsense. But there, are also, there is also a false gospel that says you know that you're a child of God before God because you are growing in some sense of Practical righteousness. And we don't want your assurance, and we preached about that last week, right? We don't want your peace and your assurance to be in you. As many brothers have said through the years, I I was probably in middle school when I first heard this navel-gazing, introspection, looking inside of ourselves to see if we really are children of God. Well, the gospel testimony of a truly converted person doesn't begin with I, It begins with Christ. And I'm just saying that there are exceptions. I have been saved by Christ this way. I mean, you know, let's don't be so literal that we chop off each other's ears. So, Jesus himself. The instructions are not burdensome because he has carried the weight of their failures. He's carried the weight of their purposes. What is the purpose of the instruction of Scripture? Scripture. To show us the perfection of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, fulfillment of all things required of, of, of him. He didn't become righteous. He is the righteousness of God. All the shadows of the law point to him. He is the fulfillment. He's like, ta-da, all that you have been looking at and trying to accomplish is me. Now I will accomplish it for you. See, that's what he says to his people. That's the good report. I will accomplish life for you. I will accomplish obedience for you because I am the righteousness of God. I am God in righteous form in the flesh. See, this is Jesus speaking, not me. <laughs> that would be a sound bite to get me in trouble. So the instructions are not burdensome because he carried the weight of their failures. He also is our joy. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our peace. And as the scripture says, we've already referred to Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. But what happens? We get up, we see the world, we see our lives, we feel the pressure, we have all of these sinful thoughts. Let me remind us again, and I've said this a lot in the last year, the spirit of God does not give us a spirit of fear. The Spirit of God does not give us a spirit of suspicion. The Spirit of God does not give us a spirit of disbelief. Hear that. So that anytime our flesh feels those things, it is always of Satan. Now, did I call anyone in here Satan? I probably have thought it. No, I'm just just teasing. Just these people in the front row there. Um, Those two chairs. No, did I call anybody demonic? No. We are, we are tempted by the demonic. Why? Because our flesh loves to feed on itself, on its food. Suspicion, frustration, fear, animosity, malice, all of it, 100% of the time, since the very first couple ever walked the face of the earth in the presence of God and his righteousness, all of those things come from the enemy. And so when we express them in ways of thinking we are working in the context of faith, we lie and we do not practice the truth, you see. What is our hope? As Paul says, who's going to save me from this body of death? Christ. Christ has saved us from this body of death. And so we gather as we're instructed for our joy, not that we would please ourselves, but that we would be And reminded and encouraged to love one another and to serve Christ through service to one another. No matter how upset you might be with someone. Nor, if you find out they may not even be converted, you still are commanded to serve them. When Lucifer thought in his heart he should share the glory of God, God threw him with the multitude of the heavenly host out of heaven. And then he put that same idea in the heart of the first couple. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like him. And beloved, it's still the same thing today. People think that they ought to act like Christ and treat people as Christ treated the Pharisees and treat people as Christ and speak to people as Christ spoke to the false teachers. Yet Christ is God and he is right in his assessment. And then Christ commands us to shut our mouths, turn the other cheek, and to work with our hands and stay busy about our own affairs because we're not him. So to do the other is to say, is to claim divine essence. You see? That's what it is. And it's rampant. It's rampant in our own hearts. We do that to ourselves. We do that to one another. We do that to the world. It's easy for us to look across the street and go, "Mm, look at them over there. No, look at you. Look at me. How about this? Look at Christ. See the difference? Because we can get wound up in this instruction. Why is this important? Because, beloved, if we don't know where our peace rests, we're going to have a hard time with Paul's letters to Timothy. Because there's a lot of stuff in there that's going to empower our flesh to be to think it's divine. It's a lot of stuff in there that if we're not careful, if we're not floating on, if we're not walking, imagine the letter to Timothy as this as this terrain and the peace of God is the carpet on which we ride. I know that might be paganistic about flying carpets, but imagine that. If we're not resting on the peace of Christ as we Traverse the terrain of Paul's writing here, we are going to put our foot on the ground and claim victory in our own rights. and our own power over certain things. Or worse, we're going, to make, we're going to make wrong judgments concerning our interpretation of what Paul's instructing the elders of the church to do. Thinking we have the authority to do so and thus become idiots and wonder why our life is falling apart. Because I'm a giraffe and I want to be a giraffe. That's why I'm stretching my neck. And then I'm paralyzed. Well, that's my fault. We must have the peace of Christ as the, as the resting place as we study the Bible. The gospel. Jesus himself. Because nothing can separate us from him. Yet what we do is we dispose of that joy and we dispose of that peace ourselves when we're at odds with others, when we're at odds with ourselves, when we're ignoring the promises of God through the assembly who tells us that only supernaturally God will restore our joy when we're together has nothing to do with what we offer, nothing to do with the ambiance, nothing to do with the music, nothing to do with the style of preaching or the ability of one to be an orator or not. It has nothing to do with the comfort level in here, whether it's clean, dirty, or, or whatever, whether it's wet or dry or anything. It has everything to do with God promising something extremely personal to his people through the simple discipline of just being together under his word. And when we stomp our feet and make our own demands of God, we're only hurting ourselves. And when we scuff our knees, our whole body hurts, right? We dispose of our joy when we are not doing what God has called us to do in the remembrance of Him. And most importantly, what we're going to talk about this morning is sovereignty. So biblical preaching, biblical teaching for the saints is to be done by the elders of the church. No one else. No one else has the authority to look after the lives of other people. You know? To instruct them in things. But yet that's what we think we do sometimes. We can remind one another of what the scriptures teach, but the elders are looking after the flock. So biblical teaching and preaching is to remind the church of whose we are. Whose are you? You don't belong to yourself. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. Why? Because I belong to Christ and we are Christ's. You see how the only way to wiggle out of that responsibility is if you have a divine gift, the divine essence of being Christ himself, or maybe a little Christ, or a sub-God to know the hearts of men to know the truth of god's electing grace and to dare stay stand before god and men and say who and who is not in the faith and who and who is not in god's plan of redemption and who and who is not given to christ wow that's beyond hubris that's insanity it is psychotic at the demonic level What's this got to do with anything? This is what our flesh is. This is what our flesh does. It's what all of us, everyone here, in the sound of my voice, can identify with what I'm talking about. Because we are in that way. Often, if it's not our people in our house, or the people in the congregation, or the people in our neighborhood, or the people at work, or the people on TV, or the politicians in the White House, or the guy down the street that we don't know, or the dog that might belong to the neighbor... It's somebody. Almost 100% 100 of the expressions of Christianity on social media are negative non-biblical assertions and distinctions that are not taught in Scripture. Almost 100%. It's not a proclamation of what the Scripture teaches. It's an ideology of what man has decided, it teaches. And the flesh decides to get all excited about that. And we know what's wrong, and we know what's not right, and we know what's in error, and we know what is not good living, and we know who are doing what shouldn't be done, but beloved, that's not what it means to know Christ. If you want to know if you know the truth, you will know the error when you see it. $10,000 a day since this country was founded would not make a billion dollars. It's 800 and something thousand, eight hundred 800 something million. And that doesn't even touch the amount of errors that are in the world concerning Christ. So you could learn 10,000 errors a day since this country was founded and you wouldn't have a billion errors and you wouldn't even be scratching the surface. But guess what you wouldn't have even if you had a billion errors? A dollar's worth of truth. <laughs> you don't get to the truth except what is revealed by God and His sovereignty. God has sovereignly expressed Himself to His people in a supernatural way through the writing of Scripture. And where the scripture teaches, we follow. Biblical preaching and teaching is to remind the church of whose we are and who he is. So that we too can know the joy together of his power and his hope-filled promises. Now this isn't, this is review, beloved. We've been talking about this for a long time. So the church assembles under the teaching of the scripture so that we can read Paul's letters to Timothy and to others, to the Hebrew people, John's letters, John's gospel, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and all these other things, and we can read all these letters who were written to a people who the apostles were so confident of their regeneration that they refused to call them anything but beloved children. And if Paul and the apostles were alive today, they would rebuke the dogmas You know what that means in the South? I don't either. But if there was dog mess, he'd rebuke the dog mess out of us. Is that a mess the dog makes or is that the mess that plops out of the dog? We don't know. We don't care. It's just a mess. He would rebuke us so hard for our unbiblical narratives, our unbiblical stances, and our wickedness in refusing to hear the simple instructions of the practical theology taught by the apostles. Because they all, all these things defame the truth of what Christ reveals in His Scripture. And we come together to learn and to be reminded of these things. Why? To the praise of who He is. To praise Him for who He is. To the praise of His glory. The word glory means who He is. Who He is. So we assemble in order to praise Him for Himself, for His glory. And then we are to assemble to be prepared through the reminder of who He is and whose we are to serve Him, to love Him. How do we do that? Well, I do love Jesus. Really? How did you love Jesus today? At the minimum, you prayed for someone else that wasn't you. That's how you love Jesus today. At the minimum, you serve someone who wasn't you. That's how you serve Jesus today. If you don't love him and don't serve him, is he going to throw you into the lake of fire? No. Well, beloved, your joy is never going to be complete. You're always going to be looking for an extra layer of piety that's not found in Scripture, whether it be doctrinal or, or philosophical or, 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 or academic or lifestyle. Remember last week I said something about the Puritans? Man, they, make, they depress me. There's a few that I can read and, and go, wow, this is, this is good. I, I really am just resting in the promises. But most of them like, good gracious. Who is saved? Jesus died for himself and he didn't need to. Wow. So we worship him. We love Him by loving each other because of Him. We serve Christ by serving each other, but we are not Christ. And we're not called by Him to be His soldiers. We're called to be His lambs. We're called to be sheep. We're called to be those who need to be taken care of by His Spirit, need to be carried by His power, need to be encouraged by His grace. We're not to be strong in ourselves. We're not to stand bold in our own abilities. We're never to be in the flesh whatsoever. We are to be at all times by faith in the Spirit. Because when we're not, we lose our joy. We lose our peace. We are to be taken care of by His Word. The washing of regeneration by the Word. You see that imagery that Paul writes? And He keeps us and He washes us and He carries us all the way home. What is that? That's grace. That's sovereign grace. And it's free. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to keep it. There's nothing that we can do to cause Him to give it to us. There is nothing. Grace is free. And grace is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. And beloved, I don't know where I'm supposed to stop today. This type of teaching is bad for somebody like me because I have 70 something verses picked out here. And I was reviewing them this morning very early, and I realized I had triplicated some of them in some points. So I knocked it down a few. So I don't know where I'm going to stop. And I'm really preaching for my own good this last four weeks. Because my joy has been gone. My flesh has ruined my joy. I've been sick. We've got turmoil. Family's been sick. Y'all have been sick. Y'all have had turmoil. The economy's in the mess. The weather's not nice. (laughs) Got dirt in my pool. I mean, you know what I'm saying? What else could go wrong? Flat tire? Let's just go out there and just take a hammer and bust them all. I mean, don't you feel like that sometimes? Just, ugh. And so we look at all these little things, and instead of thanking God for the good, the bad, the ugly, we whine and cry and get upset, and then we take it out on those people close to us. The straw that breaks the camel's back is the most abused thing in the world. But it's rarely anything that would ever bother us. It's all the other straws underneath that one that's caused the breakage. But oh boy, to be the one in the limelight. It's not a good thing. So I'm preaching for my own good. Why? Because the word of God must inform me and remind me of whose I am so that I can carry you and remind you of whose you are. And the beauty of it is I don't have to be in a place of joy in order for God to carry you to the place of joy through the preaching of the word from my mouth. I'm just a slave anyway. And then something supernatural happens when I have this responsibility that he will allow me to teach. And then I may go home and go to sleep for 14 hours because I don't want to face the world. So who's my joy? And I have no other message for you this morning, beloved, or yesterday, or the day before, or the year before, except Christ and him crucified, his word to you. But it's not just the theologies of Christ, concerning Christ. It's the word, verse by verse, word by word, sentence by sentence, expression by expression. The syntax of whatever language, whatever scepter language we're reading the Bible in. That is our job, is to preach Christ fully. The full counsel of Christ is the full counsel of His word. And the New Testament is written to the church. That we may understand the promises of the prophecy. So we may understand why Joseph, why Cain, why Pharaoh, why Noah, because God is sovereign. We have to remember that Tippins is not wise. And the minute I believe I'm wise, I'm actually stupid. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. So the more wise we become, we realize the more stupid we are. And the only true wisdom is Christ. Only righteousness is Christ. So I'm not wise, but here's a newsflash, neither are you. None of us are wise. Christ is our wisdom. And I can't trust in any of you, and you can't really trust in me, but we can trust in Christ. Why? Because I'm not sovereign. Christ is sovereign. Trust in Christ, He is God, and God is sovereign. And what is sovereign? Sovereignty is expressed in kingdom power and authority. And we've talked about this before, but when we look at sovereignty in the context of the world, there's no one higher. The word God means the highest of all things. That's what God means. It's not His name, it's what He is. The highest of all things. And so when we know that he is the highest of all things, then we have to say, okay, then who is higher than he? And the answer is no one, so he is sovereign. A king that needs to put his subjects to war to keep his kingdom is not sovereign. He's He's a sissy and a coward. You see? So even the sovereigns of this world are cowards, weaklings. But God is not. And the scripture tells us, the psalmist tells us in chapter, our Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Now that's enough, right? He does all that he pleases. But yet we still have in our own right, a caricature of what pleases God. How do we know what pleases God and His sovereignty? By what He's revealed through His Word. In context. In Romans 9, we see Paul writing, and he asks questions. He says, what will you say then? Why does he find fault if he's sovereign? He's done me this way. Who can resist his will? Then he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its maker, Why have you made me like this? See, God is absolutely sovereign in everything. Beloved, that is the only way we will know our peace. And I told you this morning or last week that I was going to talk about relationships today. But, beloved, I think that's what I'm going to do. I think that's what this is. When I talk about God's sovereignty and that our peace is subject only to the sovereignty of God. Let me put that a different way. The sovereignty of God alone will create our peace. That includes our relationships. That includes our jobs. That includes our calamities. That includes everything instead of continuing the series you know, for 30 more weeks, peace, 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 it's an exhaustive thing. It's never going to end. So today it will end and we'll move on into the meats and the structure of Paul's writing to Timothy. But for today, we need to know that God is absolutely sovereign in all things, and that includes our relationships. Between what relationship? Our relationship with Him and our relationship with each other. We are reconciled to him by his work, and then we can seek peace by resting in his work with one another and not taking the things upon ourselves as to how we're going to resolve issues, but God has done it in his sovereignty. So how is God sovereign in his reconciliation of our relationships with him? And the answer to that is election. Election. God has in His will, in His own desire, eternally purposed to save a people for Himself that He has foreknown eternally. Before before there was anything, He has loved us. Psalm 65 4 says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Now listen to those words. Blessed is the one that you choose, O Lord, and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And now I want us to go over, of course, we're talking about peace in the context of Paul's writing to Timothy. But go to Ephesians chapter 1. And I would say, out of John 1 and John 3 and John 6 and John 10 and John others, that this text is probably one that's often brought up. Why? Because it is a constitution for the people of God assembled. Ephesians establishes not only the doctrine, the teaching of Christ and redemption and the reconciliation of God, but it establishes many theological truths concerning the Lord, concerning His sovereignty, concerning His purposes, concerning His will, concerning His desires, and all these things that He doesn't really reveal in detail, but He just expresses them in this way so that we may know who He is. And in chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting in verse 3, Well, let's just read the whole thing there, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Remember? How did Paul become an apostle? He wasn't mama called and daddy sent. Christ met him, and he had no choice. A pastor that has a choice should leave the ministry. Who's he writing to? To the saints that are in Ephesus. To all of the believers who were together in Ephesus... Under one Christ, under one gospel, under one label. Were they all meeting in the same place every Sunday? No. It wasn't that. We didn't start building cathedrals for a long time. A couple hundred years. But to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he grants these things in, chapter, in verse 2. Grace to you and peace you. From God our Father and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. So see, this is important. Because it is the, it is the platform from which, on which we stand before the Father in peace by grace. Verse 3 down through verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Himself before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, set apart, sanctified, and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So I've already preached that entire text this morning in points. And it's just the way I think, I say things, and then I prove that what I'm saying is biblical. I just think better that way. Because when I read that text, and 500 other things come to mind. So if I focus on the text, talk about it, then read the text to prove it, I show you. Beloved. Beloved. God is sovereign. And He's created His, he's, re, he's revealed Himself through the creation of His Word, which is also eternal. But He wrote it down so that we may know Him in His sovereignty. And what has God done? It says there, by the counsel of His own will. Why? To the praise of Himself. What has He done? He's elected us. He's called us to Himself. He's brought us into His presence. He's given us all the goodness that is everything that He is in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It's not the stuff that comes from Christ. It is Christ. I'm going to say that again. All the spiritual blessings are not the things that come from Christ. All the spiritual blessings are to be given to Christ. Christ is yours. And you are His. Faith is settled in that proclamation. Faith that is granted by God doesn't go, now what do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do to keep it? What What do I have to be? Faith that is settled goes, oh. Skip on down to chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Look at verse 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Now see, we were in Hebrews a little bit last week. We saw that in order for inheritance to be given, there has to be death. In order for forgiveness to be given, there has to be death. In order for us to be adopted or to, be, to, to receive what is guaranteed to us, it has to be death. And the only way that you cannot get what you inherit is if you just leave it. But guess what? It's still your property. Your parents pass and give you a house. It's your legal responsibility. And when the taxes aren't paid, they're calling you. Well, I just didn't accept that inheritance. Too bad you're paying the taxes. You see? Well, I call property rent, or actually, Trey actually coined that. That's what it is. You can't get away from it. You can sell it. You can't sell God's grace. You can't get away from the inheritance of Christ. You cannot escape it. It's life. We pretend inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Whose purpose? Our purpose? No. God's purpose. And what does He do? He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Beloved, God is sovereign in all things. And most importantly, He reveals Himself as sovereign in salvation. Sovereign in redemption. He's purchased the people. He's adopted them. Called them His own. Given them to Christ. Crucified Christ. All the stuff that goes along with redemption. All the things that we learn through the revelation of Scripture. About what Christ has done is ours. Christ is ours. And why did he do this? So that we who were the first to hope when you have hope, you have peace. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of who he is. His glory. And I mean, we could just go on and on and on, but I, like I say, 68 more to go. <laughs> 63 more to go. God elects after the counsel of his own will. I mean, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 11 says, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for they are yours. Matthew 22:14 it reads for many are called but few are chosen. Jesus says in John 6:37 for all that the father gives me will come to me will will know me will believe me will rest in me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 13:18 I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures be, be, will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So we understand election comes with an antithesis, doesn't it? It's taught in scripture. And that's reprobation. And only God knows who are the reprobate except for the few, few exceptions that are listed in scripture. Few exceptions. But God elects his own, to life. And he chooses others to death. Jesus prays in John 17, starting in verse 6 there. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I and they have kept your word. What does that mean? They've believed in me. We've gone through that. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for all of the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And all yours are mine, and I am glorified, and I am revealed in them. I am who I am in them. Quit, quit, having the, quit having the cultural Christian vocabulary glory, glory, glory. I am who I am in them. I'm revealed in them. I'm seen in them. How? Because the work is finished. God's election for his people is finished. The work is finished, the redemption is finished. We're not yet glorified, okay, but we're still finished. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more death to be had. There's no more there's nothing else for Jesus to accomplish. And he's not in time. He's not sitting there with a timer on the wall going, "Oh my goodness, are we there yet?" I mean, you know, this is not God. God is he is. We're the ones waiting. And it's not just the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus through the synoptics and the Gospels. The teaching of, of the apostles and the acts of the apostles. The scripture says that they went attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily who were being saved. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 say these words. It was necessary. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Who's he talking to? The Gentiles. That's why Romans was written. How are we able to believe this? We're not Jews. We're not worthy. You got that right. Paul and Barnabas. You've thrust it aside and you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life look and see Paul says we are turning to the Gentiles for the Lord has commanded us saying I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth and when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed Now, I need to just preach on evangelism, right? I've already talked about Romans 8 and about God working all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? Salvation. To glorify Himself in being the Savior of a people who cannot save themselves. He can create light out of darkness and He can create life out of death. In Romans 9, Paul quotes the Lord He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it does not depend upon human will, desire, mind, or exertion, power, or energy, but it depends upon God who has mercy. And then he quotes the scripture says, "For the scripture says of Pharaoh, I have raised for this very purpose, I've raised him up, or you up, speaking concerning Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." So He has mercy on whoever He wills. And He hardens the heart of whoever He wills. And I could go on and on. I've got so much here. But God is sovereign in His election of His people. Love, don't ever forget that. Because when we take away sovereignty and salvation we make salvation an opportunity that depends on the creature that's where we get the idea of and i don't want to get into the weeds of historical monikers but that's where we get the idea of you know choosing to be saved or or you know free will salvation or decisional salvation decisional regeneration you know baptismal regeneration covenant regeneration All these silly things that the Bible doesn't teach. That man follows a certain protocol and poof, he's in the covenant. And that's what we'll all do until we're taught of scripture. We'll all gravitate toward these Galatian heresies. Of which all the Galatian, all of the writing to the Galatian churches. There was a lot of people there. A lot of congregations there. Paul was passionately dogmatic about their conversion they were the children of God and they were being taught to look at something else other than the promise of God and sovereignty so therefore they had no peace I said to a brother last night concerning Galatia I said what kind of fear must have been instilled in the men of Galatia that they'd be willing to circumcise themselves (laughs) he goes I ain't never experienced that kind of fear Think about that for a second. This isn't like wear this, go here, wash this, you know, cut your hair, don't cut your hair. This is circumcision, adult circumcision. They were scared to death. But they were born of Christ. And that's why when Paul teaches of the sovereignty of God in their relationship with him, and that they cannot be lost, and he shows to the relationships that God had with other people, Hagar and Sarah. And though both children were what? Sons of Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's business to tell God who his children were. God sovereignly chose the other. God elects because God is absolutely sovereign after his own will, according to his own purpose. So that as God commands us as his people in Christ Jesus to rest, he also instructs us to make peace as we are able, according to the gospel, and in no other way. This is because of his purposes, not ours. See, it's not about our purposes. Do you know why we call ourselves Grace Truth Church? The full name is Sovereign Grace Truth. One word. Baptist Church. So that people know where to stop on their way. Because the laws of the land require a corporate structure to rent commercial buildings. Things like that. But who are we really? And that name could go away. But the people could be the same. Who are we really? We're the children of God. We are assembled together as a covenant family. We've made a promise to one another because of God's promise to us. Just like marriage is a temporary picture of the church eternal. And marriage ceases at death. The body of Christ does not. God's purpose is in God's will. Isaiah 43, God speaks. I love this text. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. The gospel writer, John. In John 1, I mean, we could just, we could just go. Beloved, I'm telling you, we could go through every book of the Bible and just flip and go, oh, here's one, here's one, here's one. Here. And that's what happened. I was just going through it. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the decision of the mind, but who were born of God. God being rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. This is God's doing. God has established peace in the sovereign in his sovereignty. 2 Timothy. Go over to 2 Timothy real quick. Look at uh, at verses 8-12 through there. Paul instructs this young man. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And do not be ashamed that I'm in prison. But share in suffering for the good report by the power of God. Who saved us and who called us to a holy calling. Not because of works, but because of His own purpose. And because of His own grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And which is now, which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, the Christ, Jesus. Who abolished death and brought life and brought immortality to light through the what? Through the report of His obedience. Through the report of His work. For which I was appointed a preacher to report of His work. And an apostle, a messenger to report of His work. And a teacher to teach of the report of His work. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. Listen to this. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Beloved, the Lord, and we've seen that. We've seen that promise already. He will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. God will guard His people. He will guard the good deposit. He will guard His gospel. Not through minions that He purposes to be heralders or or wall watchers. People that go to Nehemiah to instruct the New Testament church make me sick. The apostles instruct the New Testament church and tell us what Nehemiah is a picture of. Christ. Is the wall. Christ is the watcher. Christ is salvation. Christ is the army. Christ is Yahweh saves. Where's Joshua? His body's rotting in the ground. But he's alive in Christ. And he doesn't have a sword. There's only one sword coming from glory. And Jesus is the only one carrying it. And what is that sword? The proclamation of his authority of himself. Beloved, that is sovereignty. It's too much. That is peace. And beloved, it is free. Because of Him, you are in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, who became to us wisdom. I've already said this and referenced it many times. But He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one boast, boast in the Lord. have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know one of the worst boasts? And the presence of God is to say, look what God allowed me to be in my knowledge and righteousness. Rather than Christ is my knowledge. Christ is my righteousness. Because, beloved, God can take the mind of His people away. I'll testify to it. The scripture testimony. God gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God knows the heart. And to think differently and to act differently. I want us to hear this in closing. Because it's important. I say this stuff and it our feathers get, you know, like a cold breeze running up our backside. To act differently, to expect a different outcome in opposition to what God's word has taught us is antichrist. To make Jesus sovereign in salvation and all things and to be all things and God to be the author and the finisher of all things concerning all things, even bad things and good things. You know, the wicked of the world are under God's sovereign hand. To think we are going to affect the change or the outcome of the transformation of these circumstances is antichrist. If we think we're going to do it in opposition to what's been prescribed according to the teaching of the scripture. So ultimately at the end of it all we have peace and we have rest in the gospel. And we do so with other believers who are continuing to rest in the assembly. To rest in the go- rest together in the assembly in the gospel of Christ. In the gospel of life. In the gospel of glory. Nothing can change that. So we seek peace and reconciliation according to Scripture. We could go to Romans 14, 15. We could go to Ephesians and and look, and we could see how James talks about to seek uh, reconciliation. We can see Jesus speaking to these things. We can know that God has sovereignly ordained all things. Beloved, God has even ordained. Divorce. God has even ordained death. God has even ordained people telling you to jump off a cliff. And when these people come into our lives, we rejoice. We hold fast. We rest. And when people come out of our lives, we rejoice. We weep. We pray. We strive for reconciliation. But we do not go outside that which God has commanded us. Because when we do, we are saying you're sovereign in salvation, but not in this. God has purposed those who are in our lives for a short time and those who love the gospel and those who change their mind and do not listen to the truth. God has ordained and purposed those in our lives that will listen to the voice of their shepherd that we will be friends forever, some of us. The gospel is our unity according to the scripture. The sovereignty of God, the free and sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is our unity according to scripture and everything else. We will work out as God has ordained through the hearing and the teaching and the learning of his word together by laying down our lives and not seeking our own ways and trusting in the Lord. Not James Tippins. Do not trust in me. You will, you will be very, very disappointed. And it happens a lot. People, people, well, that's a great idea. When are you going to do it? I'm not doing it. A wish list is not it's not a roadmap. I'm not doing anything else. I'm not doing anything else than what I'm doing right now. Nothing. I'm not adding new ministries. I'm not doing any more teachings. This is what I do. That's it. That's it. Oh, you've got some ideas? Get on it. More power to you. Lord bless you. I will toot the horn. Go do it. Look at this. This is great. And when it stops, when you decide it's over, it's over. You know. The gospel is reunion, not these things, not these affinities. God's revelation of His work through Jesus Christ is the news of effect that drives us together. And when something else can drive us apart, we're not in the faith together. We may be in Christ. But we're not in the faith together. We're not learning together. We're refusing what God has established. Because we are able to rest in the gospel according to the sovereign and free grace of the Lord, we have peace in all circumstances. And in that we can rejoice. And it's not easy, but we do it together. God doesn't need our meddling, He is not looking for heroes, He's not looking for people who are bold. People esteem other pastors who tell it like it is. Jesus never told it like it was. And if he did, he's God. He's a law unto himself. He displays what is righteous and good and perfect. Because he knows all things and he's created all things according to his purpose for himself. So what God does with what he has made is his business. We don't get to mimic. Christ and our dealings with people. Unless it is what? Long-suffering, patience, kindness, obedience. We are not called to be anything but humble servants, quiet and peaceful, private, working with our hands. We can go to Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, which we've studied here through the years where the scripture teaches that the biggest problem in the body of Christ is when people meddle in other people's affairs. People think accountability means I get to look at your life and watch it and then tell you when it's wrong. That's none of my business. If I have a relationship with you and you with me, and in that relationship we have the ability and the intimacy to share life together, then you can inform me of things because you love me. But if you're coming into my life to try to tell me different, teach me different, or change me. I don't want you. And I'm telling you right now, beloved, you don't want those people in your life. But, brothers and sisters, we're all guilty of being that person. And so how do we speak the truth in love? You say, that's not your business. You don't have to know the details to pray. God does not need an explanation of what's going on that he foreknew. So just pray for me. And our relationship will go a lot further if you just love, if we just love one another for who we are now rather than thinking that we're the catalyst to make each other something else. Beloved, there's a peace in that. I'm going to tell you right now. And this old boy is done trying to change people. Why? Because it's a sin. The Lord is sovereign in transforming the lives of His people as He sees fit. Some of us will learn and grow. Some of us will have faith. And all of us will look at this and say, how come we can't have faith like Johnny? Goodness gracious. And then we might even put Johnny, the head of a class, on how to have faith like me. And then we'll all be in it. And then we'll all pretend we have faith like Johnny. But God hasn't promised to grant us that. So we're running a fool's errand by thinking we can employ other methods of instructing the church other than the teaching of the scripture together in the assembly and then living out and reminding each other and encouraging one another as we teach the scripture in our relationships together. You can't contrive intimacy. You can't make it. You can't make intimacy happen in a marriage. If it's not there, it's not there. And there's nothing worse than being told, you must love me or else. Beloved, that isn't how God has saved us. God's word says, you hate me. And I'm going to lay my life down for you anyway. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. And then I'm going to show you what I've done and show you who I am. By my spirit. And then you're going to love me. Because I've loved you. And then your peace is going to surpass. All understanding. Beloved. That is where we rest. That is where we sit. That is where we must stay. Every day of our lives. And I'm going to tell you right now. Please pray for one another. We have a lot of folks sick. Several families with COVID. Several families with. Anxiety, several families with physical pain. There's a flu bug going around. There's a stomach bug. There's an aggravation bug going around. You know? There's sin. There's worry. There's doubt. There's economic failure. Everybody is suffering in their own way, but there's one remedy, and that is to be reminded of God's sovereignty, even when there is no practical application of now what? Just remind us. Remind one another. Share with one another the the truth of, of that so that we will not forget. Because we do forget, we forget, we forget when things come along. So take in the breath of God, take in the word of God, and fear not. We are at rest and no one can change that. So let us learn to live that way together as a family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just a reminder throughout all of the word and so many different things that are on my heart and mind. But Lord, for the sake of what you have purposed, you have accomplished all that you have deemed necessary for our time this morning. And so, Lord, above all things, would you encourage us in the gospel? We are your people, we are born of your spirit. We confess the truth of your revealed gospel. Lord, we submit to your word. We pray for one another. We pray for those who have suffered loss. Those who have had death. Father, those who are ill and, and inundated with, with sickness. Father, we pray you heal them. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering in their marriages, God, that you would just restore them. That you would break down pride and hostility and and arrogance and selfishness and that you would bring marriages to a place of humility and intimacy. Father we pray for our children who don't like to obey those who have no interest in the faith. Father we pray for the things that are are happening around us and in our homes and our work and our jobs. Father we pray for for all sorts of things, and we don't have to tell you the details, Lord. You know what they are, but, Father, what we ask of you is that your will is done in all of them. What we need and what we think we want, we share with you, but, Father, ultimately help us to be at rest in your sovereign power and hand that you will work out all these things according to your purpose so that when your answer is not what we thought, we can thank you for it. Help us to be people of thanksgiving and praise not just when things are good, but Father, when things are horrible. And we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would humble me more and more and that our hearts would all be broken for those who do not know the truth or Father, for those who are stuck and caught up in anger and resentment and unbelief. That we may be patient with them and that we would be Guided by your Holy Spirit, according to your word, as to when and how we approach others in the context of our lives together. Not because what we want, but because what you have established. And so, Lord, as we worship and continue to worship this morning, we thank you for the great privilege and your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.